This week on the Off the Crossbar podcast, April 9th to 11th, 2021, the projected start date of the 35th season, the light at the end of the tunnel that we've all been waiting for. Rich List will stop by to talk about the decision process and what is next, plus what are players going to do until then. All that more on OTCB. charge so all my thoughts are just those my own thoughts and opinions. we'll talk about those we'll also talk about what april 9th to 11th 2021 means for the national lacrosse league a date that's a mark in the sand but not set in stone rich lisk of gf sports and the new york riptide will stop by to talk about the decision how it was made and what is next? Because that's still six months away. A lot could happen between now and then. Especially with the looming U.S. presidential election in a few days. Who knows what will happen on either sides of the border between now and April 2021. The announcement was made on Wednesday. Tuesday, actually, that the vote had passed through the Board of Governors, the owners, league dignitaries, that they would mark in the sand, stake in the grass, April 9th to 11th, 2021, as NLL face-off weekend. Would be the latest start date, I believe, in NLL history. 
And it's going to cause a lot of friction and crossover between themselves, MLL, PLL, MSL, WLA, the junior leagues. This is something that we haven't seen before. But if you go and listen to the interview the commissioner did with the guys from Lack Sportsnet, he makes a comment in there which really stood out to me. And I think it goes to show that he is, he being Nick and the National Lacrosse League, are concerned and cognizant of the fact that that overlap and that start date will indeed cause friction and cause some players to have to decide where they play. But what he said was, they are doing all that they can and working as diligently as they can so as those players do not have to make those kind of choices and that they can play in as many leagues as they can. And that's not something we've really ever heard before. Because with the thought of it being an April start would push them all the way into late August for the regular season. And then into middle of late September for playoffs in the finals. That would cover every other league that would normally play lacrosse at that time of year. And everybody north of the border is concerned of what this decision would mean for the Canadian Summer Leagues. What does it mean for the WLA and the MSL and the Junior Leagues that have players in their leagues playing in the National Lacrosse League? Would they be available? Would Canadian senior and junior lacrosse survive? Junior will survive because there's not that many percentage-wise of players in the junior leagues playing pro. But a vast majority of the players in the NLL are senior A players up here in Canada. And if it was determined that those players weren't allowed to play in any other league outside of the National Lacrosse League while they are under contract with their teams in season, how would those other leagues survive without those high-end, top-caliber quality players? It is a big question. And everybody has their ideas and their opinions as am I. And not everybody's going to agree. I'm of the thinking that over time, as the National Lacrosse League gets bigger to where we are 16, 20, 30 teams, whatever, that it will be a full-time, full-paid professional league. And we will get to a point where NLL players under contract won't be allowed to play in the Canadian Summer League. But we're not there yet. The NLL can't afford to pay players $60,000 a year and have them relocate and things like that. We're not there yet. The goal is to get there. The goal is to get to six-figure contracts and guys living in market and solely playing seven, eight months of NLL lacrosse in a massive league. 
That is the ultimate goal. But for right now, I think everybody understands that in this unique situation of a COVID summer, spring summer, that some adjustments have to be made. And so there might be a lot of leniency in allowing players to play for multiple teams at the same time. Now, knock on wood, hopefully nobody gets injured and then we have a dispute of who pays and whatever. I think we are going to see leagues make adjustments this year. I I don't know what it is. I don't know how they will go about it. But I think some concessions will have to be made in these very odd times. Like I have said, I believe that the end goal for the National Lacrosse League should be that it is the be-all and end-all ultimate league professional highest level of lacrosse. And everybody attains to be a professional lacrosse player. And that the Junior League would be a developmental, growing the young players, that's where they get drafted from. The Senior Leagues become sort of AHL, farm team type teams. And this is a thought that I've had for many, many years. And it's also a thought that Aiden York put out on Twitter very succinctly in the last couple of days. And I really think he was on the right path with how he was thinking. We need to understand that the growing of the game is what we all want. And yes, for decades, for us up here in Canada, when we were kids, we all wanted to win a Minto Cup and a Man Cup because that's all we really knew. The the early days of the National Cross League and the North American Cup, we didn't really know about it as much. We just thought it was sort of this American league that they played that was on TV. We all wanted to win Mintos and Man. And there are still a large case of those people playing lacrosse now that want to win those and will always want to win those. Winning a Man Cup is the greatest thing I've ever done in my lacrosse career. But... Winning a NLL title is the highest league in lacrosse. Professional. That is where you want to attain to. And so people will always want to win Mintos and Man. I think as you get older, the cachet of winning an NLL title and being a professional has gained more warrant than winning a man cup. And I think some of that has to be done because you only get a few years to win a Minto. So the Minto is always going to be and have lure. But I think more and more kids, as you ask them, would they rather win a man or rather win an NLL title? I think more kids now would say they'd want to win an NLL title. That's just me. I could be way off. I have never done a poll of kids these days and asked them. But I believe and I feel that the lure of being a professional and winning the professional title has more cachet. But 
we can still continue to keep the level of play at its highest if we work on a tiered farm system. And Aiden York pointed this out on Twitter, talking about having the National Lacrosse League be at the top of the mountain, Major Series Lacrosse and WLA be like the AHL to the NHL, where it is farm teams and you can have players moving up and down, two-way contract type things. You don't have to really worry about protecting players on practice rosters or cutting high draft picks because now you can send them down to your farm team. And then the junior leagues become where these kids become amazing young talents. And instead of getting drafted by, for example, the Victoria Shamrocks out of your junior career, you get drafted, say, to the Colorado Mammoth, whose farm team is the Victoria Shamrocks. That is a possibility and would be an incredible way to build lacrosse and continue to grow. Because instead of having, you know, these sixth round draft picks that teams get, which is great because you're still drafted to the pros. A lot of those kids never have a sniff and are just getting drafted. And that's just a tick mark they can put on their wall. And then they don't really have anywhere else to go. So why not give them a place to go? And that be your pro team's farm team. And you can develop that player through your system and you can eventually move him up and down, trade him, use him for whatever. Just like NHL, AHL. I know there are a lot of people that take that thought process as negative towards Canadian lacrosse and anti-Canadian lacrosse. I just think we need to continue to move forward and make our sport the best it can be and give our players the best opportunity to succeed and to grow. My opinions, my thoughts, but I think a lot of people see that as a possibility. But again, Rich Lisk will say this when I ask, ask him about it. But he feels that this April start is just a COVID start. And that when we get through year 35 that we might be able to go back to a regular November to December kind of start or a January start, whatever it may be. Get back to when we normally have our season. So this 2021 season may just be a massaged start date. So just because they're doing it this year doesn't mean it's going to happen every year. So pump the brakes. Let's just see how it all plays out. The commissioner has said that he has in continued talks with all other big bosses of all the other leagues. Rabel, Sandy Brown, Paul Del Monte, and even out in Ontario with the MSL. If they can all just have open talks about how this summer is going to work and we can get through it, and everybody can sort of have a season, and then we can reset for 22, great. We don't even know if April 9th through 11th can happen because we don't know what is going to happen. It is just a tentative start date 
we have a line in the sand, a light at the end of the tunnel that we can work towards. So let's just all focus on that. I don't have the answers. I don't know the answers. I have many questions like you all do. So let's just wait and see how it all unfolds and get through each passing month and each day closer to what we would hope would be the start of the NLL's 35th season. Rich Lisk was one of many who were involved in those conversations of when we would start, how we would start, and what a new start would look like for the National Lacrosse League in 2021. He's a longtime friend of the show and one of those people I could just talk to for hours about everything. And in this interview, we kind of do talk about everything. Life on the island, lacrosse, managing in one of the biggest counties in the United States, and of course, a little bit of wrestling. This is Rich List 101 right here on the Off the Crossbar Podcast. Adapt, anticipate, and be prepared to pivot. Those were the words of Commissioner Nick Sakevich. As we work towards April 2021, there are still hundreds and hundreds of questions that we don't know the answers to. Maybe our guest this week, Rich List, the New York Riptide, EGF Sports, can help us with some of those questions. Rich, how are you, my friend? Good, Teddy. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Um, are you all moved and settled into your home in New York? Because last time we talked, I am you, you had a house full of kids. <laughs> you had girlfriends and boyfriends staying at your house, um, yeah. getting ready to move to the island. Are you settled on the island? I am settled. I am settled. I will tell you, August was a rough month for the Lisk household. As we call it, Team Lisk. August was rough for Team Lisk. We had to move my older son and his girlfriend into their first apartment, my younger son up to college. And then my daughter, she was in New York City, and that's been closed down. So my daughter, my wife, and I, within three weeks, we moved those, my son and his girlfriend there. We moved my other son to Boston. Then we moved to Long Island finally. And I will say there was that time where you're in a car, you packed to the gills, you have your settlement in hand. We sold the house, and we're pulling out of town like Bruce Springsteen singing Born to Run, heading to um, to Long Island, and now we are officially in Long Island. We have all the boxes put away. Um, the three of us are here until New York opens up a little bit more for my daughter, and uh, and everything's been going great. What's Long Island like in late summer and early fall? You know what? I got here August the 24th, 25th. The apartment complex, the condo complex I live in, had a pool, so that was nice. We had a pool. I'm 14 miles from the beach, which is nice. And then on the weekends, we try to get out and go to different places. So what I've learned is I have to say that I'm on Long Island and not Mm -hmm. in Long Island, and I have to learn that everything is 20 minutes from where I'm at. (laughs) Um, I've been out to the Hamptons for a meeting. I went to West Hampton. That was beautiful. I've been out to Huntington and Babylon I live in Garden City, which for for people that don't know what that would be like, I liken it to I could walk into downtown Oakville. It looks a lot like downtown Oakville. So that's been great. We've been to Rockville Center. I mean, it's, it's really cool. I mean, again, I, I explained to some people, we're the number one 
market in the country in New York, but Long Island is the 14th largest market inside the number one largest market. So things I've learned since being here coming from the Jersey Shore. Um, Everyone honks their horn in the car. If you're sitting at a light, which I tend to do, and maybe look at my phone once or twice, if that light turns green, they are beeping at you um, very quickly. And there's a lot of people in a condensed area, and um, everyone is a little bit on edge at times. Um, But otherwise, it's been great. So obviously the big news has come out that the league has set a tentative date for the second weekend of April, April 9th to 11th for face-off weekend. This has been a moment we've sort of all been waiting for. Uh, you know, it's been six months since we've played a lacrosse game in the National Lacrosse League. We've had the draft. We've had the offseason. Now we can kind of start to look forward to April. But that's still a long way away. How confident are you that that date is held firm? That's a good question. And I think if we all had that answer, one of us would make, be making a lot of money off of that and be in a different position. Um, I think based on everything that the league has done, my opinion, based on every, all the people they've talked to, the research they've done, Nick and Jessica and Brian Lemon and that group has done a tremendous job getting us to this point. And I agree with them. We had to put a stake in the sand and that's what they did. And that still gives us a good six months. Everyone says there, you know, there could be a vaccine in, in sometime in the first quarter. We're still very cognizant about what's going on in the world. Um, so I think the, that decision that they made gives us the best opportunity to have this season. And I think that is something that needed to be done. So fingers crossed, um, it, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get off the ground the weekend of April 9th through the 11th. That's our goal. This announcement was tentatively set to be made last week. It got delayed. It got pushed back. It comes out this week. Was there a um, a rush or a, a need to get this announcement out now before the U.S. election, which is going to kind of cover all media and kind of block everybody's mind for a little while? Was there was there an urgency to get this this timeline stamped in the ground or a stake in the sand, as you said? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of factors played into that. Uh, You and I could probably have a two-hour podcast on what's going on with the American elections and and things, (laughs) Um, and we won't get into that, but there's been a lot of factors in that, right? And if you wait too long and you're thinking April, and then you announce in January, well, you're really giving teams four months to sell tickets and, and stuff. So you still have to look at the business side of things, too. So I think this gave us the best opportunity to put a business step forward to, to do that. And it gives us a nice ramp leading up to it. But I think there was a lot of factors. We were one of the only major leagues really that hasn't played since March and and have talked about playing since March. So you don't want to go by the wayside and wait a year possibly before you say something. And, you know, we can all put on our press releases and, and do what we're doing and sign players and have drafts and stuff. But until you really say you're playing or you have played, which all the major sports have done, you know, sometimes out of sight, out of mind. So this gives us the best opportunity to do that. So I think there was a lot of factors that played into it. And, and again, six months is a, is a ramp up for us. And when you have the NFL, I mean, not the NFL, when you have the NBA and the NHL saying what they're saying, you know, the NHL could be sometime in that uh, 
January timeframe, they're putting a, a, a somewhat of a stake in the sand. And the NBA is saying around Christmas that uh, they're going to put their stake in the sand. I think we would have gotten lost in the shuffle if we didn't say something. And, uh, and there's a lot of thought and, and, and things that went through that. When I tell you every scenario was run and every uh, aspect was thought of, this was the best case out of all of that. How was this date received by all the other owners and board of governors throughout the league? Because I'm sure it probably wasn't a 100% signed, sealed, delivered, everyone agrees moment. Yeah, I think everyone goes back and forth and, you know, you look at your markets and we're all in different places, right? Like mm-hmm. you're all in, I personally, and I'll talk about New York, like I'm in one of the areas that have been hit the hardest, New York, Nassau County, Long Island. So we had different concerns than maybe some teams that uh, are in places that are open a little bit more. You know, I'm not speaking for any team whatsoever, um, but Georgia is a little more open than New York. So you have right. different areas there. Toronto is different than Saskatchewan and San Diego is different than Colorado. So there was a lot of discussion back and forth. We're all partners in this league. We all look out for each other, you know, as much as you possibly can in a competitive world. So yeah, there was a lot of back and forth from teams. And I will say there was a lot of good give and take. There was a lot of explaining, like, I don't know what the, stuff's going on in San Diego and Colorado as much as I do what's going on in New York and Philadelphia. So I think it was a very good dialogue. I think it was a very healthy dialogue for the league because this is something unprecedented that we, uh, we've never been faced with before. You know, there was no team back in 1918 when really a pandemic like this is it. So um, I think everyone coming to the table with their facts, their opinions, made for some good, healthy dialogue in that. And out of all of that came this announcement. So we all came to a common ground that made sense for the league to move forward in its 35th season. There's obviously hundreds of scenarios that could happen between now and then. And there's got to be, as Nick said on the podcast, Cup, we go plans A through Z, A through Z, whichever side of the border you're going to lay on. One of the concerns obviously has to be the border and whether Canadians and Americans will be able to travel back and forth. And and you're a team that has Canadians and Americans on your roster. What do you think that's going to look like in April? That's a great, great question. And, you know, and when I'll speak for New York and the way we looked at this, we said, first and foremost, number one thing we will worry about is the health and safety of our players, our staff, our fans, the workers in the building, the guy taking the tickets to the woman working at the concession stand. That will be number one. We will start there and work backwards. Then we get to players and borders and all of that. Um, it is a concern, right? But, you know, I think last week there was that, uh, you know, thinking like when you look at everything, the way it was laid out, it's the borders are closed. Essential workers can come across. you got a for- quarantine for 14 days. Now it loosened up a little bit where there's no quarantine for 14 days so much. You're going to do rapid testing going back and forth. So we'll start mm-hmm. seeing those things, those little things starting to change. But, yeah, I mean, it affects it. I mean, come April, you hope that the borders are open and we have a vaccine and you're going forward. But none of us can predict that. Um, but we do have to look at that. Now, 
does that affect how people look at their rosters and, and things like that? A- absolutely. It would, it would affect that and how training camps are and, and things like that. But I think that's down the road that we have to look at and we monitor things very closely. I, especially in New York uh, with a, a governor, whether you like him or not, and I, I tend to, I'm leaning towards, I do like him very much. Like he's been very diligent about closing things and keeping it with masks and social distancing and coming down on people. I saw a Twitter the other day that I, two Twitters that I thought was pretty funny back in the summer. There was a big block party in New York and he Twittered out, don't make me come down there. <laughs> and then we had a sweet 16 party here on Long Island a few weeks ago that became a super spreader event. And he's like, well, that wasn't so sweet. So mm. he is on top of a lot of stuff. And, and, I, and we're airing more on that side. So that's where I start. I'm airing on that side of pure safety first and then working backwards. And I'll take it as it comes. I can't say the borders are going to be open or the flights are going to be flying like we all normally do. Um, but I will take what's in front of me to make the best possible scenario work for us here in New York. Obviously, it's, it's a, a living model of how we're going to go about running a National Cross League in these times. But one of the greatest aspects of the NLL is the interaction between players and fans, whether it's pregame walks, whether it's postgame autograph sessions, whether it's shared a beer uh, in the bar postgame, once all is said and done. Those are huge characteristics of the National Cross League. How do we ensure that we can keep those despite everything that's going on? It's a great, great thing, right? And that's the part of the aspect I love. Mm-hmm. And when, when I was in New England, we used to hold a lot of town hall meetings where we'd have 100, 150 people show up and they'd ask questions and we'd be in there for two hours and we'd be in a, a smaller type venue and, and talking. And then our players, I, you know, when we were in the, when I was in New England and we would play at, at home, our guys walked right through the casino, right? Mm-hmm. That's how they got to the front door of the building, like signing autographs. And we didn't go through the back door and, and, and down through the loading and stuff. So I think from, my standpoint of, of being in sports, the interaction between athletes and fans are really important. With that being said, our world is going to change. And when this whole thing started, I, I looked at that as saying it's a challenge for how we need to, how we need to shape sports coming up. We're going to be on we're going to be part of something that's going to change, right? There's, our new norm is coming. And every time something major like this happens, we have new norms. Like my kids don't understand what it was like when you and I were young and we would go to an airport and people would be standing right at the front of the door when you came out to greet you. Mm-hmm. And you could walk freely in and out of an airport. Major thing happens, uh, you know, at 9-11 and things change. And now we, we adapt to that. We're going to have to adapt to a new normal here. And we got to get creative in our business. From the whatever sport you're in, whatever league you're in, you're going to have to get creative. And some of the things we've been doing is, you know, social distancing birthday parties with our mascot and players. Um, we've been doing a lot of Zoom calls. Like it's not uncommon now for my players to record Zoom stuff, and we send them out randomly to season ticket holders to stay in touch and keep those touch points. We're creating a thing with Callum where he's creating an online um, training sessions and health and fitness and, and training where you're going to get personal calls from Callum and walk you through what you should be doing. Uh, and, and all of our players, we're working all of our players into that. I think those are the new things we're going to have to do to get creative because we are going to have that social distancing at the arenas and in person. 
and then hopefully at one point in, in this crazy time, and I don't know when that'll happen, that things will get back to quote unquote normal and we can start getting a little a little more back to what we were used to. But to me, I look at that as a challenge. And if we're doing our jobs right, it's an opportunity for us to reshape what that should look like and get creative with it. Obviously, April will pose other problems, and that being the overlap with MLL, PLL, Western Lacrosse Association, the Major Series League. There is going to be an overlap, and that is going to cause issues. And the commissioner has said that there's constant dialogue with all those leagues to try and eliminate the overlap and make sure we find a plan that works for everybody. You are a team that will have players playing in the pro outdoor leagues and playing in the Canadian leagues like every other team. How do you see that working? And is that a benefit for the NLL to be starting in April? That's a great, I mean, I think you're, you're hitting with some really good questions and things that we running teams go through every single day. And I think it's great that Nick and, and Paul and Sandy are all talking about that. I think it's great that Nick is talking to the Western Lacrosse League and major series about how we deal with that. And I'll let them handle that at that point on the national level and what they, and what they come up with. On a local level, it will affect us, right? Like I have uh, you know, I have Connor Kelly, I have John Rannigan, I have Miles Jones, I got Cody Radowitz in the MLL, Leo Storos in the MLL. Like, we have, we have a good group of guys that play both leagues, and that's going to be a personal conversation that we have with them. I have started having those conversations with the guys and say, listen, we're, we're going April 9th to 11th. You back that up four weeks. We're going to start training camp in March. We're going to try to do that. But, uh, you know, past April, when you guys are starting, um, what's that going to look like? Are you going to play with us? Or are you going to play with them? And I think it is going to make some interesting decisions. I think it's going to make some interesting roster moves and plays and strategy by teams. Like, what do you do? And, again, there's another piece where we have to get creative with that. And maybe – and that, we've never had any of these conversations, but – you know, at a league level, but maybe you're looking at different rosters. And, and now that practice squad becomes a different practice squad based on if one guy is going to leave halfway through the season or, and then what do you do there? So I think there's a lot of conversations that need to come out of that, which we expected, at least I did. I expected when you put your stake in the sand, you can go through every scenario you want. You can go through every question you want. But when you put that stake in the sand, there's going to be other questions that come up. And now that the stake is in the sand and we have it on a date and, and, and what we're saying, now you go back and you start checking off the list and answering these as much as possible. So I applaud Nick for doing it beforehand, which is great. Keep that dialogue going. But on a personal level here in New York, we will have those conversations with the guys. I'm a very open and honest uh, person with our players, and we will sit and talk with them. Jimmy and I will sit and have I will give them a perspective from an ownership group. Jimmy will talk to them about a perspective of what the team's going to look like on and off the field. And then we got to make some decisions and they're going to be hard. They're not going to be easy decisions. And we know that, but this is the reality we're faced with right now. Do you think April becomes the norm for the national cross league, or is this just a COVID season going to be in an April start? I, I personally think, and this is just purely my opinion, and I've had never any conversations with anyone about this, I think it's a COVID thing right now. And, um, and I think we kind of fell into a nice area 
with where we were before. It fit perfectly into a calendar in a way. So I personally like that calendar. Um, but I, I think, you know, because of what's going on right now, this is what we have to live with right now. You mentioned hard decisions and easy decisions, and some are harder than others and some are easier than others. When you were looking for a general manager, how long was that process or was Jimmy Veltman your first call? No, Jimmy Veltman was um, not my first call, or I shouldn't say that. I did talk to a lot of different people. And listen, when I was going through that process, you had guys coming out of the woodwork. And you had guys that wanted to be your head coach. You had guys that wanted to be your head coach and GM. You had guys that wanted to be a head coach but weren't qualified enough yet to be a head coach. And then they slipped into the assistant coaching spots. So I would tell you right off the bat, some of the first people I talked to wanted both of those jobs. And I didn't know if we were going to go in that direction or not. You and I talked about that. Mm -hmm. um, as things started to shape out and my responsibilities started changing, it wasn't a, it wasn't a position I was going to take on this year. So then I started to say, okay, am I comfortable having a head coach be the GM too? You know, some people like it, some people don't. It depends on the right person. And then when I was zeroing in on our, our uh, coach, um, I looked at Laddie and we had a long talk and, and he and I had a long talk about it. And I think he wanted to really concentrate on being a head coach right away. And I think that was the right decision because you couldn't take a guy who's never been a head coach before or a GM before and stick them into both of those roles. I did not want to do that. And then when we got down to, I was starting to narrow my list down on both ends. Laddie started moving to the top of that list. It makes you start to rethink your, your strategy. And I started to think about who, who would be a great just GM. And Jimmy and I have had a relationship in the past. Jimmy helped me build that culture in New England from the start. He was there the second season that we were in New England when we went four and 14, he helped us get to 10 and eight that second season. But the most important thing is Jimmy helped us set that culture. And Jimmy and I spoke a lot and we spent a lot of time on the road together and we've known each other's families. And I know the person and the human being that Jimmy Veltman is. And that's what I wanted at the top of our, at the top of our, our food chain in a way. And at the top of our pyramid um, working downwards. So when I, when I thought of that, I didn't know Jimmy would take it. I didn't know because he's a teacher and he, he has his other work and stuff like that. So when I called him, it's a funny story. He thought I was calling to talk to him about other candidates. And I said, no, you're the candidate and <laughs> let's talk. And then when, when we got to that point, it went very quickly because he's comfortable with me. I'm comfortable with him. He had a great relationship with Dan. I was developing a relationship with Dan. And this triad that we've kind of formed now has been great because we live off of the word collaborative. And, and I've always preached on not only the, the lacrosse staff, but our office staff, that this isn't a dictatorship, it's a democracy. And we work off of that, uh, that scenario, and it's been awesome. And, and we couldn't have picked a better GM. Jimmy's done a great job stepping in here. He's learning quickly. He and I are, are working very closely together, but uh, we had a good, in our opinion, we had a great draft. We filled a lot of holes that we needed through that draft, and we set ourselves up for the future also. And, and I couldn't be happier with in the direction we're going in. Everybody knows he's at Cornell going back for his fifth year. Um, Two-part question. A, are you able to be in contact with him or any of those college kids at all? And B, with this start being in April, how likely is it that maybe you can get him and some of those other college guys into your lineup 
come April when their seasons are done? And those are good. Those are good questions. Like, so yes, we had the number one overall pick and we took that player at a Cornell, which was uh, which was a great pick for us. Um, we have, uh, we were in constant contact with Cornell on what we can and cannot do. We did not want to violate any NCAA rules. We didn't want to jeopardize anything for the player and his eligibility of uh, anything like that. So we have been in touch with his family. I have talked to his father and things, and we welcomed um, him to the team that way. We just thought that was the best way to go for everything, just to make sure everything is on the up and up and we're not doing anything wrong or or jeopardizing anything for him. He has made the decision to go back to university for his, his fifth year, and we couldn't be happier for that. We are going to be here when he is done. We are going to talk when he is done. But as a family, as a father myself, that, that's the dream they had for him to play college lacrosse and hopefully win an NCAA championship. And, and God forbid we did anything um, that we didn't know or, or inadvertently that would have ruined that for them. So I erred on the side of caution and did not uh, talk directly to them at all because we didn't want to do that. And we all, not that we didn't want to, but we also didn't want to break any rules through Cornell, which gave us a very detailed what we can and cannot do. And uh, so, so I have talked to Dan, his dad, to welcome the family. Um, but that's, uh, that's been where we're at with those. And then we took the same route with our other guys and we have welcomed them through their families and stuff. But again, they have made decisions as people and families to, to fulfill their fifth year. I didn't want to get in any, I didn't want to be in any way possible contributing to anything. Um, so it's better off this way, but they know they're part of the, they know we drafted them. They know we want them and they know that we will be here when they are done playing. Um, that second part. Yes. I mean, it changes. Uh, I, I want him to play with us as soon as he possibly can. And mm -hmm. when we are, legally quote unquote able to talk to him when his eligibility has run out we will be the first call um i will be in a car driving to ithaca to uh to sit and talk with him and and get that deal done and get him here hopefully that's what that's our goal and, and from all of our guys that are going back to the fifth year that's why we that's why we took them and and that changes our dynamic a little bit because we have you know we got you know the, the number one pick we got you know a couple other guys that are going back and that changes a lot of our uh, a lot of our dynamic if these kids can come in. But we also look at this as the future, and that's one of the things we looked at in our draft. That said, yes, we understand that these guys are going back, so we need to get better now, and we need to get better for the future. So we did a mixture of both in that we weren't just concentrating on guys going back, and we weren't just concentrating on guys that could help us this year. And I think we've come out of that draft with the trades we did and the people we picked that accomplished both of those. Now, logistically, how hard will it be to, you know, player A finishes his fifth year of college May 17th. He's done. He's free. He can go do whatever he wants. How logistically hard will it be to get him signed to a contract, get him a, a P1 visa so he can – make money and get them on your roster. How, how quickly can that be expedited? That's a great, I would have probably been able to answer that. I don't think I could ever answer that question down to, I'll answer this two ways. I don't think I could have ever answered that question down to it's going to take three days or it's going to take a week. Now, I think in a normal time frame, I could probably give you a, a roundabout idea of how long based on doing immigration and stuff like that. 
But now with everything going on, that just throws everything out the window. Like I don't, I can't, immigration is going to be a huge deal. Borders open, not open. You know, guys uh, quarantining, not quarantining. They're here on a school visa. How does that affect the P1s? Like, so I've started those conversations with our immigration attorney and said, hey, first and foremost, I need you to start looking at what's our P1 situation going to look like this year. And then I could have these three or four guys finishing school and going, and what's that going to look like? That's the million-dollar question. I think in this world that we live in now, it's thrown everything out the window. You don't know. You don't know what the backup is going to be from everything that's happened already. So that question is going to be a really, really, really tough one, and one that the minute those guys are allowed to, to leave school and they're done with their eligibility, that's got, if that happens at 12 o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, by 12.05, if we're doing our job right, we're on the phone and working diligently to get all of those things done because you can't let a minute pass if you want them in your lineup this year to work through that because there's a lot of uncertainty. Is there any possibility that the National Lacrosse League does a la the WWE and makes virtual fans <laughs> inside a studio <laughs> so that fans can still be a part of the action? <laughs> that's great. I watch it every week. I think the Thunderdome idea is pretty good. Last week yeah. I've been uh, I've been listening to this podcast of Tim Ferriss with Matthew McConaughey, which I highly recommend if anyone hasn't listened to it yet. He has a new book coming out, and Matthew McConaughey popped up on Raw the other night yeah. with his kids. So I think that stuff is great. I think nothing's off the table. Like you know, every team has to do what makes sense for them, and maybe that makes sense for some teams. Um, I'd love to have. Uh, you know, Vince McMahon's budget's on a lot of those things, and I, I get that. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't throw any idea out, of, out the window. Kevin Hill made an appearance on the Thunderdome one night, too. Did he? I yeah. didn't see that. Yeah, he's a, him, and, him, awesome. him and Carly are huge wrestling fans. And, uh, yeah, there was one night where, where he was on there as well. Um, there, there's been some programs on the Vice channel. Uh, it's called The Dark Side of the Ring, and it portrays a lot of incredible stories uh, of old school wrestlers. I watched one on the Legion of Doom. There was one on the, the last days of Owen Hart. Um, were you uh, ever close with Owen Hart and the Hart family? Very, very close to Owen. And, um, you know, you just gave me goosebumps, like when yeah. you mentioned Owen's name. Um, Owen and I um, were, were kind of in the – I mean, he's been in the business a long time than I was. But when I was kind of starting to go on the road with the guys – Owen was one of the guys that was really, really good to me. And there's a time period there where you're like, you're the office guy and they're the wrestling guys. And uh, so you got to bridge that gap a little bit, kind of like, you know, talent and office. So you got to do that. And Owen was always one of the guys who treated me with respect. I traveled with Owen. I, I used to be an out, when I was an internal promoter, I also handled the out external promoters and I handled Calgary so I dealt with Owen's dad and his family, Brett and I, actually at, Curry, at Tracy Kolusky's um, yeah, right. uh, induction ceremony. I got a chance to sit with Brett and we reminisced over the years together being on the road and, and all of that. But Owen, Owen's son, Oge, was born the same time as my son, Bump. And Diesel hold, on, hold 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 on. Your son's name is Bump or is that just like a nickname you give him? 
that's a nickname that has kind of been his legal name. If I would have made it into the hospital room five or ten minutes earlier, it would have been his legal name. Um, but it, it ended up being Bump. He's Richard Jr., but Bump. everybody in the world knows him as Bump. Bump that's hilarious. That's and, hilarious. Uh, and and even guys like when I talked a few years ago, I talked to Kevin, and he asked, how's Bump? And um, and then I left, and uh, Owen had the tragedy happen. Yeah. And uh, it was it was gut-wrenching. It was, it was gut-wrenching because when I tell you he was, a, 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 how do I put this the best way? He was a kind soul, a good human being. He liked to play pranks and jokes. And, and I actually rekindled a, a relationship that I had with one of my friends. So back in 1994, we were doing the WrestleMania Revenge Tour, and it was Owen um, and uh, Brett fighting. And he every once in a while would fight Yokozuna and stuff like mm-hmm. that. We were on the road. So with myself, this guy, David Glixman, who now works for um, SodaStream, and that's how we connected again, and my good friend Tom Hunt, who's like a senior vice president with the, with, the, with the Sacramento Kings, and the three of us went on the road, and we put on the WrestleMania Revenge Tour as the guys who gave out gifts. I was an in-ring announcer, not the uh, ring announcer, but kind of like a roving DJ that you see, and they would film it and send it back, and they'd be like, hey, if you weren't in Indianapolis – you missed this. And we would pull people out to be Brett's manager and we'd give out tickets and we'd give out shirts and stuff. And we were filming everything and sending it back. And there are many things my friend David called me because I found those tapes, Rich. I'm going to make them and give them to you and stuff. And you'll see everything. And one of them was, is we used to go to the ring and Owen would be wrestling and he'd be in that mean face and he'd have Brett or Yokozuna in a headlock and he'd be yelling and screaming and the fans would be like, oh my God, he's such a jerk. He's this, he's that. And he was looking at us going, where are we going for dinner tonight, Rich? What are we doing? Are we going to Burger King, McDonald's? How are we getting to Indianapolis? And he's wrenching <laughs> in the thing. And, and we'd be laughing because everyone thought he was yelling and screaming curse words or whatever at somebody. And it was really asking what we were doing that night. And that's the kind of guy he was. He was just such a such a great human being. Yeah, the, 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 the final days of Owen Hart was the episode on, on Dark Side of the Ring. And it's just, I remember when that, the tragedy happened in St. Louis on the pay-per-view. And um, I, I can't imagine being a wrestler and having that happen or being one of the broadcasters, like watching Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler when that happened, yeah. to have to continue after all yeah. that happened and to be a fan in that stadium when that happened it had to have been one of the most gut-wrenching moments of all time. That was, it was, I mean, I was not there at that point. I think I, I left by then, but I had a lot of friends that were there and they said, Rich, when that decision was made, we just kind of walked through it like zombies. Like, you know, you got to finish and you're working, but a, mo- a lot of them that I talked to can't tell you what happened after that. They just mm-hmm. know that they got through it. Yeah. And uh, it was, it was tough. I mean, there's so many times I was watching one a couple weekends ago well, you know, Shawn Michaels and I think it was WrestleMania comes in on the comes in on the uh, zip line. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, the arenas yeah, yeah. and stuff, yeah. right? So that stuff was kind of done a lot, and this was just an accident that he didn't yeah. realize it wasn't hooked, and out he stepped. And and I can't imagine being in that arena or, or being around them and uh, and that stuff. And Brett and I talked about it a little bit um, when we when we met up with each other, and it's still fresh in people's minds. It's mm-hmm. a, it is a tragedy. Um, let's, let's talk about a little happier wrestling story. Did I ever tell you the, uh, ECW story where I ran into, uh, the Sandman and one of the pit bulls in Philadelphia? <laughs> you did not, but I can't wait to hear it. 
Okay, so it's probably like 90, no, it's probably like 2000, 2001. I'm a senior, junior, senior at Mercier. So my brother's playing for the Philadelphia Wings at the time. So I went out to spend Easter with him and his girlfriend, who's now his wife, and their family. Um, and they're playing the New York Saints in Philadelphia. Um, after the game, they had the postgame party at the Holiday Inn right across the street from the arena. It was owned by Jake Bergie's yeah. old man, Bill Bergie, who was. Um, obviously a long-time Philadelphia Eagle and, and a legend in that area. But wrestling fans, and some people know that ECW was the hub in Philadelphia. So I didn't know, but a lot of those guys just hung around there at the time. So we're in the post-game party having drinks. And I'm, you know, being a young kid, trying to keep up with all the old guys drinking beers and having a good time. And I look across and I see this guy who's six six, blonde hair, bronze tan, wearing a Hawaiian shirt with only like two buttons done up and he's just working the pool table, the cigarette hanging out of his mouth. I'm like, Oh my God, that's the Sandman. My brother's like, who am I? The Sandman. Come on. You gotta know who that is. So I'm like, I'm going to get his autograph. So I walk up to him. like, Hey Sandman, huge fan. Could I get your autograph? He's like, absolutely dude. Signs it. And I look over and there's this other dude. He's got long black hair sitting on a stool. I'm like, Holy crap. That's Sabu. I'm like, that guy's a legend. That's like ECW, Sabu. Crazy. Like, crazy, crazy, right? And so I go over to him like, Sabu, holy shit, man. Can I get your autograph? And at the time, this dude's sitting in a, on a stool, and he's my height. And he stands off mm-hmm. of the stool, and he absolutely dwarfs me. And I look up, and he goes, my name's the Pitbull, you little bitch. <laughs> and my brother said he could see me from across the bar, like, shrink two feet. <laughs> And I'm like, I'm sorry, Mr. Pitbull. Can I get your autograph? And he signs it, Pitbull 2. And I, like, flink back towards my brother. And I was like, dude, what, was, what happened there? He goes, I got the guy's name wrong. <laughs> and I'll never forget it. Like, I was so scared that he was going to grab me by my throat and push me up against the wall. But, like, half hour later, I see him in the bathroom. We're taking a piss. Him. Oh, Pitbull, you're the man. I love you, man. Thanks for the autograph. That was great. Sorry about calling you Sabu and all this shit. I'm like, oh, my God. Like. I've had some pretty cool run-ins with wrestlers from being an, an outsider and just a fan, but uh, that was a moment that I'll always remember just That's because hilarious. you're just, you're just so caught up in the moment where you see a celebrity and someone you kind of watch on TV and then you get his name wrong and you feel like a complete ass. And then he makes you feel all of two inches tall and you think you're, you're going to get your ass kicked. That's hilarious. You went into the mouth of the lion there, South Philly, right? ECW yeah. territory. Oh. Like that is, they could have stayed in character and uh, you would have had some fun there. I could have gone chairs to the table. <laughs> <laughs> funny, it's funny you bring that up about that uh, ECW, no. Yeah. No, 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 no. no. was never part of ECW at all. Um, it's funny you bring up the story about calling someone by their, their different name and and I had that same thing happen to me. And to this day, I still feel like a complete idiot. So I'm a big Sopranos fan mm. and um, watched it like six times. And, you know, you got the whole Italian thing in Jersey and that's where I grew up. And a lot of the things on there I remember and see and like the cemetery scenes is where my grandfather is buried. So it was a huge deal. So back when I was with the Philadelphia Soul and I was their GM, we had this guy who did our dance team. And got a call saying that our dan- they wanted our dancers to go to Atlantic City and um, be at the, at the Sopranos function and help bring people up and meet the Sopranos and stuff. And he comes, he goes, hey, you're a big Sopranos fan. 
um, do you want to go? And you'll get to meet the guys. And, and I've been around the wrestlers. And, you know, at the time, I was, uh, Bon Jovi was our owner and Ron Jaworski. So I, I was never been, like, starstruck. But to be able to be in the room with the Sopranos, I was like, all right, this hits a little close to home. I got to go. Mm-hmm. So my wife and I go down to Atlantic City, and my friend is there who's moving the cheerleaders around and putting them where he goes. He goes, just stand here and stuff. So I'm like, all right, we stand here. And, you know, all these high rollers are coming in and taking pictures and doing everything. And then they're having a Q&A afterwards. And I was like, oh, man, I didn't, I didn't really get a chance to meet them and stuff. But it was great being here and stuff. So we go over to the theater, and my friend says, wait right here. So we wait right there, and this door opens, and James Gandolfini opens the door and says, hey, are you rich? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, come on in. So I walk in, and they're all there. And wow. uh, James Gandolfini and I are talking, and he went to Rutgers. I went to Rutgers. We're, we were close in age a little bit. You know, he's a little bit older than me, and we're having a great conversation. And I got to admit, like, I'm in a suit with a shirt, and, you know, the, I, was, I was dressed to be in Atlantic City, and being you know, an Italian from Jersey, it was a big deal for me. And I'm there. We were in the playoffs, so I had a beard and stuff. And, and we're, uh, we're talking. And we're having a great conversation. Everything goes, hey, you want to take a picture? And I'm like, yeah, we took a picture. And it's one of the, you know, now that he's no longer with us, it was a great picture to have. And my wife was talking to Michael Imperioli up to the side, who played Christopher Maltesante mm-hmm. on the show. And um, we get done with Jim. He's like, hey, I got to go on stage and answer these questions. But I'm going to come to one of your games. He was friends with John Bon Jovi and, and stuff. And the whole Rutgers thing, he goes, go, are you? And all that. And I walk over to my wife, and I'm like a kid in the candy store. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm like, this is the greatest thing. And I walk up, and I'm like, hey, what are you doing? She goes, oh, I'm talking to so-and-so here. And I go, hey, Christopher, how are you? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I just called him by his character's name. And he just gives me this look. Like, who's this dweeb? Who's yeah, this yeah. Schmuck, small guy. And I go, can I take a picture with you? And he goes, sure. And we took a picture. Oh, and you got to see the expression in the picture. He looks like this dweeb just called me by my character's name and stuff. And and uh, and so that's the one I wish I had back where I, I, I feel like they weren't going to beat me up, but at yeah. least I felt like I completed it. And then I'm just like slink out of the room. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. moment was ruined. <laughs> Um, before we let you go, this is always a, a, a great chat as, as we always do, but, um, what do you think the biggest roadblock for the NLL in April is going to be? You know, following all the protocols, I mean, and following what's in front of us, making sure we stay to our plan, making sure that, um, you know, a lot of people, especially down here, um, dealing with it. And again, you know, first and foremost, I think we need to, and we will here in New York follow every local, state, federal law and, and make sure that the safety of everybody involved in our organization and putting on this product is safe and healthy. Um, and, and I just don't like what's going on now with this false, the false hope type thing. You know, we, we got through a pretty good, we got through the big pandemic part of it and people kept saying it was coming, it was coming, it was coming again. And then we let our guard down a little bit. And, um, and now it's starting to kick in again mm-hmm. with everything. And, and I think we as a group in the NLL, especially the Riptide being here in New York and in Nassau County, you know, we got, we have our plan and we got to stick to the plan and, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but let's stick to the plan until that light at the end of the tunnel isn't in the tunnel anymore. And we're on the other side of it and not jump this gun and, and go when we shouldn't go. And we got to follow what the experts are saying and we got to put first and foremost the safety of everybody in front of that. We are a sport. Yes, I get that. 
Um, putting the safety first of everybody is way more important than our sport. Um, but we want to play and we want to play in front of fans and we want it to be a great experience. And I just think we need to make sure that uh, when you see those glimmers of hope, there are that. They're glimmers. Wait till that, that light is really big before we make that decision. That's, that's my opinion. Always a pleasure, my friend. Stay safe out there on the island. Don't ever get it wrong or you'll be kicked off the island. And uh, stay safe. We'll talk to you soon. I've had people say that to me, brother. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you too, brother. There he is, Rich Lisk of the New York Riptide and GF Sports. Some interesting tidbits there. I think maybe the biggest one is that, much like all of the other general managers in the National Lacrosse League, they are unable to talk to any of those kids that they drafted that are back at college. So when we do, and if we do get to start playing in April, it will be very interesting to see how many of those kids are able to work out a contract with their team, get all the immigration and paperwork done and all that, and and on the field and playing. It will be interesting if that is able to happen. And if it is happen, if it is able to happen, how many of those kids take that opportunity and play right away or just wait until the full season? Because I, I, I agree with Rich. I don't think it is going to be easy to flip those guys into P1 contracts expeditely. Ex, ex, expediently? Expediently. I don't think they'll be able to get it done very fast is what I'm trying to say. But who knows? Who knows what's going to happen between now and then. Appreciate Rich, Rich joining us to talk. Uh, always love our chats. Uh, he's becoming a true Islander. Learning all the boroughs and the fact that it takes 20 minutes to get to anywhere. That's the same thing here on our island out on the West Coast as well. You're 20 minutes from anywhere when you're in Victoria. So glad to have Rich back on the show. And we'll continue our chats as we get closer and closer to April and the hope that we will be starting a brand new national lacrosse league season. So now what, what are all of these players going to do between now and then with the possibility of no lacrosse to be played in the national lacrosse league for six months? Well, it looks like, Players in the lower mainland and the greater Toronto area are going to have some options. As the Extreme Lacrosse League and the Rock Elite League Pro League have kind of put their feet in the ground. And are giving NLL players a chance to play a little bit of lacrosse while there is no lacrosse. Now I don't know how... All of the logistics are going to work for these two different leagues. But um, in speaking with the commissioner, Jake Elliott, uh, he said that they are going to be doing pretty much everything status quo. Full on lacrosse with a no tolerance for fighting. But I said, you know, is it going to be kind of soft lacrosse? Guys going through the motions, no checking or anything like that against the boards kind of thing. He's like, nope, full on contact, just no fighting. Insurance is being paid by the BCLA. All the players are signing waivers. So, looks like they've got most of their bases covered. He even said that they are hoping to film the games and put them out for everyone to watch 24 hours after they happen. So, that is pretty cool to see as well. 
They are doing pretty much the same thing out in Ontario at the Toronto Rock practice facility. Uh, they announced four teams already, as did the XLL. Um, and out uh, in Ontario, they're even, they've had such high demand that they are going to try and maybe add a few more teams on another night. So I think this is a great opportunity for guys to stay fit, stay healthy, keep their sticks in their hands. Obviously, pro teams will be watching this very closely um, as they want to ensure that their players aren't getting hurt. But it's just another opportunity for these guys to stay fit and stay healthy. Obviously, you know, in the NHL, they've they've done this. Guys get together in the offseason um, and play pickup hockey and just to keep themselves in shape. The NBA guys do it. So it's not a bad idea for these guys to do it with no summer, no winter lacrosse to be played. I just hope nothing goes wrong. That's all I hope because nothing would be worse than to see these guys going out and staying in shape and staying fit and just some freak accident happens. Knock on wood that nothing like that comes to and these guys just get through it and they can just have some fun, keep their sticks in their hands, stay healthy, stay fit, stay safe most importantly. And so they don't really skip a beat when we get back to playing in April or whenever that date happens. Because if these guys literally did nothing other than, you know, work out and train on their own for six months, make it almost a full year, there would probably be a little bit of rust. So the XLL, as they released their schedule the other day, they're starting in late November and they're having their championships, I think, in like late April. So they're going for five or six months as well. Obviously, I think mostly because COVID, they want to give guys weeks between games just in case. Um, so they're not like playing every weekend. They're playing every couple weekends. Each team will play, you know, a couple hours apart. Um, but let's just hope everybody is, you know, like Rich said, listening to proper public health authorities, keeping their distance, staying safe, and we'll go from there. I bring up one of the other, you know, the no contact thing because just as I'm recording this, the Ontario Hockey League announced that they're going to have a season, but with no body checking. And it's just going to be weird to see that. Like, I know you can play hockey without hitting. Like, it happens in beer league all the time. But that is because it's beer league. And you have players of all sizes, shapes, and ages playing skill levels. At the highest level, it is going to be a real challenge for these guys to not play with body checking. And the heavy hits. Because that is one of the greatest parts of our sport end of hockey is just the physicality and aggressiveness of the sports. So, I, I wish the XLL and, and the Rock Elite Pro League all the best of luck. I hope everybody stays safe and obeys the rules, the guidelines, and everything that goes involved in being in close connection with people. Just stay safe, everybody. That's all I ask. Because if we can get through this, we can get to April, no issues, then we're all good. But let's just hope this doesn't set us back. That'll do it for another edition of the show next week. We are continuing to effort PLPA president, Zach Courier. We hope to have him on. We're also going to start talking 
with some players who have made the transition to the broadcast booth because we need more of you doing it. We're having the player summit starting next week where the NLL is hosting many Zoom conferences for the players to talk about different aspects of the National Lacrosse League. And one of those is the broadcast portion of our league. And I want to continue to stress to our players that we need more of you to show an interest once your career is done to find an avenue into the broadcast world, whether it is through writing, whether it's through podcast, breaking down plays or becoming a broadcaster and working alongside uh, some of our great production teams in the booth. Your experience is not only valuable giving back to the game as coaches, but also as broadcasters. And we see what the likes of, you know, Jamie Shuchuk and John Gallant and Mitch Belisle and Drew Petkoff, Randy Mearns, former NLLers who have stepped into the booth. And you got guys like um, Chris Driscoll's done some games. Uh, Bill Werder has done some games. Even, you know, Jake Elliott and Brad Challoner played lacrosse growing up. Their entire lives, they played lacrosse. So they have that personal experience and firsthand experience of playing lacrosse and able to break down what happens in a game more succinctly and with experience. And the more players we can get putting down sticks and picking up microphones will bring an added professionalism to our broadcasts. So next week, we're going to try and step into that realm and see what paths guys took to get there because everyone has a different one and it will be very intriguing to see some of their stories and hear some of their stories because we need more of them out there. Thanks to Rich Lisk for stopping by and giving us some time and thanks to you for stopping by and giving me your ear for the last hour and a bit. My name is Teddy Jenner. You can find me on Instagram, OTCB Podcast, Twitter, at Off the Crossbar, or email me, teddy.jenner at gmail.com. Until we speak again, have a happy Halloween and be excellent to each other. I am an Don't try to understand A life of all